0: in our series in the gospel of john and we're starting chapter four this week and so as pastor aaron gets ready to come renee is going to join us and she's going to read our primary passage for
1: us which is the first 19 verses of that chapter good morning this is the word of god the book of john chapter 4 verses 1 through 19 now And he, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And the woman answered him, "I have no husband." And Jesus said to her, "You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are now—the one you now have—is not your husband. What you have said is true." And the woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet."
0: Amen. Thanks, Renee.
1: It's a cliffhanger
0: this week. Uh, the passage ending in the middle of the chapter. The Next, this week and next, we're going to be looking basically two weeks at this conversation that happens between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, this conversation that takes place around a well, and uh, it's too long to tackle in one week, so we're going to look at it in two weeks, and then after that we're going to be diving into our Advent sermon series. I'm really excited to tell you more about that at the end of this, uh, our worship time together today. I'll let you know a little bit more about that and then at the family gathering as well. Um, If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm also one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you today. We're going through the gospel of John together and we like to do this uh, pretty much as kind of the main bread and butter of what we do as a church family. We like to open up books of the Bible and go through them line by line, word by word, and just take our time seeing what God has to say to us. We believe this book is utterly unique among all books. It was written by men. It comes through human authors, but it claims to be the words of God, and so we believe that that's really important, and we want to look and see uh, what God has to say to us today, uh, not just what man has to say to us, myself specifically. And so if you would, pray with, pray with me, pray for me as I prepare to teach you guys. I'm gonna pray for all of us, and uh, let's get to work on this really important passage today. God, we thank you for your words. We thank you that these are given to us for life, for training, for teaching, for correcting. And God, there's much, much to be gleaned out of this passage today. And I ask and I pray that you'd help us to see wonderful things in your word. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words to be written, and so would you come now in a unique and special way and bring them to life? These words, bring them to life in our hearts and our minds. God, for myself, I pray, as I often do, that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And for all of us today, God, would you give us soft and teachable and receptive hearts that you might do a work in us today? We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. <laughs> All right, have you ever been really thirsty? On hiking, you've, you know, exercised, you mowed your lawn, you live in a d- dusty area, you're camping, something, you're just really, really, really thirsty for cool, clear, fresh water. As I'm talking right now, I'm probably making some of you thirsty. Uh, we, we have cravings for other beverages, right? We, we you wake up in the mornings, and for those of you who are coffee drinkers, you want to drink a cup of coffee, you crave that. Or some of you have a nice steak dinner. You think, I want a, a good glass of wine to go with it. I saw on Instagram this week a member of our church who shall remain nameless. She is an expectant mother, and she posted a video clip of herself drinking straight pickle juice out of the jar. Uh, Certain cravings I don't understand, I don't claim to understand, I've never been pregnant, I will never be pregnant, and, but I understand that pickles are a thing, and so people have cravings for all sorts of different beverages, but there's just something so basic about craving water. Something so human, even in parts of the world, the developing world, where they don't have access to a hot cup of coffee, or good wine, or pickle juice, <laughs> They still need water to live, go to great lengths to get water. When the Bible talks about water, it's, it's often, um, it's so, so helpful because it's such a human thing. We all need water to live. And when we're thirsty, when our bodies are craving water, we know that that's, that's what we need. This conversation that we're going to see today between Jesus and the woman of Samaria, you know, it starts out talking about just actual water. The conversation takes place at a well. They're talking about water. They need a bucket to draw the water. It's a very practical, very surface level conversation. But as we're going to see as we go through the passage, Jesus does not leave the conversation at this surface level. He's going to take it a couple of steps deeper. As we go, we'll see moving into the uh, layer of conversation about ideas and concepts. And then ultimately, Jesus is going to get very personal with this woman. And what we're going to see as we go through this passage is the big idea that I'm I'm hoping to convey today is this. Simply that Jesus offers us living water and this living water that Jesus offers us, that alone can truly satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. It's as simple as that. It's as challenging as that. What Jesus offers us is the only thing that can truly satisfy us. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's dive right into this. Passage Starting back in verse 1, and the conversation starts, again, this this layer of more surface-level, practical realities. Verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And there's some interesting things happening here. We see the geography that's at play. He's, he's in Judea. That's the southern region. He's going to get up to Galilee. That's the northern region. That's where he's from originally. And he's making a trek. He's making a journey. There's all sorts of geopolitical stuff there. The nation, we'll get into this in a little bit. The nation had been involved in a civil war hundreds of years earlier. There's tension. There's racial animosity. There's strife. There's things. And so this is a loaded sentence, when we read it with our 21st century American ears, we, we don't understand all of that context. We, we miss out sometimes on just how loaded, how, how um, intense of a situation this is. Also, he's doing so, why? To get away from the Pharisees. Jesus has had numerous conversations with the Pharisees. He has way more conversations with the Pharisees coming, but right now he just wants a little break from them. Oh, he's baptizing more people than John was? We'd better go talk to him and stop all of the fun. That's what the Pharisees are thinking to themselves. Although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples. We explained that last week, actually. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. This is a, uh, a landmark. This would be a, this is a national park if you're doing a, a road trip of, of Israel. It's a, a very important landmark. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus is the rabbi. His 12 disciples are his followers. He said, you guys need to go do a lunch run. I'm going to sit and chill for a minute here. That's good leadership. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, a lot of practical things happening here in this passage. And there's some profound things happening in this passage. So let me point out three to you. First is this. Jesus is tired and thirsty. Sometimes if you're familiar with the Bible, you're just reading through, you go, oh yeah, Jesus is tired. Jesus is thirsty. Okay, next. Let's go to Romans where the real stuff is happening. Friends, there is more theology, deep theology in that simple phrase than we can even comprehend. Because this is Jesus that was presented to us in John chapter 1 as the eternal word of God. John, the apostle John, who wrote this book, said that Jesus is the word of God who created everything. And here, the one who spoke water, the idea of water into existence now needs a drink of water. Friends, that's profound, is it not? It is profound to think that here, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, the the Lamb of God, the one who comes from heaven, the one who existed before Abraham ever was, that he needs a drink of water because he's tired, because he's thirsty. St. Augustine, an early church father and profound writer, he says this, Now begin the mysteries. For it is not without a purpose that Jesus is weary. Not without a purpose that he is weary, not without, sorry, not indeed without a purpose that the strength of God is weary. Not without a purpose that he is weary by whom the wearied are refreshed. Not without a purpose that he is weary by whose absence we are wearied, by whose presence we are strengthened. Nevertheless, Jesus is weary with his journey and he sits down near a well, And it is at the sixth hour that being wearied, he sits down. All these things hint at something. They're intended to intimate something. They make us eager and they encourage us to knock. Why is Jesus weary? Why is Jesus tired? Why is he going through Samaria? Second thing that we can see, practical reality, the woman is doing chores. The setting is the woman going about her daily business doing chores. And I would dare say that this woman, when she woke up in the morning, probably did not think to herself, today I'm going to go do chores and I'm going to have a life transforming experience. That was probably not on her radar, right? She's like, I got to go fetch some water today. Quick show of hands, how many of you are the primary one in your family that does the grocery shopping? Raise your hands, okay? All right. I see a lot of moms, a few guys. Good job. Good job, Alex. I'm proud of you, bro. Good job. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of you moms go do the shopping. How many of you, when you're loading up your van to go to Costco, are thinking to yourself, boy, today's the day. My life is, is going to change, right? If you're, if you're anything like my wife, who does the majority of the shopping for our family, she's probably thinking, I hope I don't lose one of our children at Costco, right? But here, in this moment, this woman is doing chores, fetching the water in the ancient Near East, and actually in many parts of the world to this day, this is still kind of a, a traditional woman's role to go and fetch the water. The men would be out in the fields or building things, lifting heavier things. The women uh, have to go carry heavy jugs of water long distances. I actually saw this um, in parts of Uganda that we went and visited earlier this year, still to to many parts of the world. Sometimes living water is encountered even in the middle of something mundane when you're least looking for it. Third practical reality is there are racial tensions galore in their society at this point in history. By the way, Isn't it amazing how the Bible is just so uh, unrelatable and irrelevant to our lives today, right? We never get tired and thirsty. We never have just mundane practical realities where we need to encounter God. And could you imagine what it would be like to live in a culture that had racial tensions going on? I mean, just come on. If you're new, my name is Aaron, and sarcasm is one of my love languages. You'll have to get used to it, okay? Here's, Here's a little bit of the history of what's going on between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And it goes all the way back to the time of King David and his son, King Solomon, took over. And then after King Solomon, his son took over, but the people of Israel did not worship the Lord. They did not follow God. And there ended up being a civil war of, ty- of sorts, and the nation was divided. The northern tribes, 10 of them, kept the name Israel. The southern tribes, uh, the, there were two of them. They, kept the name, they, they adopted the name Judah for, for the larger of the two tribes. So there's a divided kingdom. There was a civil war. Now the southern region of Judah, they had the capital city of Jerusalem. That's the city on a hill. That's where the temple was. That's the the main capital city. But the northern uh, tribes of Israel said, well, we need a capital city now too if we're going to be our own nation. What city do you think they made their capital city? Samaria. Don't be nervous. You own it, yeah. Oh, your voice is gone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I accosted you for being sick. My sincere apologies. That's bad pastoring right there. Samaria, absolutely. They, go, they took the city of Samaria. One of the kings bought it and they said, we're going to turn this into our new capital city. And the city was the capital. And then the region around it became known as the region of Samaria. And so this is the capital of the northern region. Now, again, the people in the north, the people in the south, it was almost like they were having a competition for who could be more sinful and who could incur God's judgment sooner. The northern tribes won, lost, I guess, and they were conquered by the Assyrians. God brought judgment on them first. Now, what happened during that period is they took the majority of the people out of the land. They had to leave their homeland. They had to leave their cities and their villages, and they had to leave their home country. But some were left behind. But not only that, the Assyrians then sent their exiles and their criminals and their undesirables to the region of Samaria and let them go and live there, and the peoples intermixed and intermarried, and so what you ended up with was uh, essentially a mixed-race people. They were not looked at as pure Jews by the Jewish people. Eventually the Jewish people came back they moved back in, they rebuilt the temple, they, they set up, but this kind of central area of Samaria was just this kind of no man's land. They weren't really Jews, and they weren't really Assyrians, and they were, they were kind of Jewish, and they actually had a lot of religious tension going on as well. We're going to get into that next week, the, the religious dimension of all of this. But for now, you should just know that there was a seriously hostile relationship between the Jewish people and between the Samaritans. There's a, a, an apocryphal passage, it's not part of the, the inspired scriptures, but it comes from a book called The Wisdom of of Sirach in chapter 50, supposedly speaking for God, where it says, two nations my soul detests, and the third is not even a people. Those who live in Seir, the Philistines, and the foolish people that live in Shechem or Samaria. It's a city in Samaria. They hated them. They hated each other. In fact, I've, I don't know if I've done this in, in three years of being a preaching pastor, but I'll put a map up on the screen. I didn't bring a laser pointer because it's not 1997, um, but I, I sure meant to. And if you can see, the, I know the print is kind of small, down near the, the southern region there, near the Dead Sea, you can see the city of Jerusalem, and there's the Judean region. And if you see up north, all the way at the top, you have the upper Galilee, the lower Galilee. You can see Nazareth right in there if your eyesight's pretty good. And right smack dab in the middle is this region of Samaria. Now what the Jewish people would most often and most commonly do is they would go all the way out of their way to the east over to the region that you see there of Perea <clears throat> so that they could avoid any contact with the Samaritans. It is racism. It is hostile. It is divided and fractured humanity. One of the oldest problems that we've ever been dealing with as humankind. And yet the scripture tells us that Jesus does what? He had to go through Samaria. On the one hand, did he have to? No, he could have gone through Perea. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. In, in, in John chapter 10, we're gonna see later, he says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. He like, I gotta go get some Samaritans because I got some sheep there too. That's our Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes living water is encountered in a very broken society. Practical reality is going on. Layer two though, Jesus isn't gonna leave it just at that. Jesus speaks to her in, in, in verse 10. Yeah, I asked her for water. She says, I can't, I can't give you water. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, a couple of things. First of all, that's a rather bold and almost, dare I say, arrogant sounding thing for Jesus to say. In just a minute, you're going to see her reaction. It's like, who the heck do you think you are? But this book, this Gospel of John, is all about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Who does Jesus claim to be? Who does John, the author, claim that Jesus is? This is about Jesus' identity. Do you know who you're speaking to? Do you know who I am, Jesus is saying? And also, I will just say this. There's some things that Jesus can say that you and I cannot say, okay? It's not arrogant for Jesus to say, I'm here to give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? I don't see a bucket. Sir, What is something wrong with you? And by the way, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's now moved from practical reality. She's going to go a layer layer deeper. Hey, what's, what's going on? Like, what are you even talking about? You think you're greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You, you remember Jesus? You remember the guy Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember which one had their name changed to, oh, I don't know, Israel? Yeah, Jacob, that one. You're greater than him? I don't even think you're greater than his cows, and they drank from this well. She's getting a little testy here. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus Jesus has now moved the conversation away from physical thirst to spiritual thirst. He says, let's let's go a layer deeper. Let's let's move this conversation to the next level. Jesus is, in essence, saying to the woman, yeah, I know you're you're thirsty. I know you have these desires. I know you want things. You desire things. And I also know that what you're trying hasn't been working. What you've been attempting to satisfy your thirst with, it's just... Is it working? Is it satisfying? Desires have this funny way, do they not? Of leading us to try things that don't really satisfy. (laughs) We all know that soda pop is bad for us. If anyone here gasps, what? Like, sorry, okay. (laughs) We all know that soda pop is bad for us. And actually, we know, medically and scientifically speaking, that it does absolutely nothing to actually quench our thirst. The chemicals that are present, the sodium that's present, you know they put a ton of sodium in it, you know why? To make you thirsty for more, so that you have to keep coming back and you want more soda pop, and yet our nation consumes umpteen trillion gallons of soda pop every second. I don't know, I'm making the stats up. A lot. A lot. There's a book, I, uh, I, I didn't read it, a friend of mine did and told me about it, but there's a book that was titled, uh, You're Not Sick, You're Just Thirsty. And one of their main contentions is that the majority of the health issues that we deal with in America is actually symptoms of chronic dehydration because we just don't drink enough water. I don't know if the book's good or not. Don't count that as an endorsement. Just an interesting idea. We know that certain things are just terrible for us and yet we continue to go time and time again looking for satisfaction. Now we know because of the scripture reading, we already know that this woman has had five husbands and is now shacked up with someone who is not her husband. So what is she going for uh, to have her thirsts quenched, so to speak? She's going for Romance, love, relationships. If I just had the right husband, if I just had the right boyfriend, if I just had the right romantic partner, then my thirst would be quenched. I would be satisfied. And you and I could sit here with an attitude of superiority and think, what a fool this woman is. Just running to relationship after relationship after relationship, thinking that that's going to satisfy her. What a ridiculous idea. And yet, you and I, if we're being honest with ourselves, we do it too, do we not? Money. How, how much money will finally be enough? How many hours of overtime and family events missed and strain on your health, and you'll finally have enough money to then be able to spend time and love those people who are closest to you? Sounds kind of cliche or stereotypical. I literally had someone tell me that once. No, I just need to work a few more hours and spend a few more years just saving up enough money and then I'll be able to enjoy my life and the people in it. If they're still there. Relationships, lovers, money, praise, compliments. It's a big one for me. You know, if I just got one more person who would finally tell me good sermon, pastor, then that would be enough and I wouldn't need any more encouragement or compliments from anybody. If my boss would just tell me, good job, if my wife, if my husband, if my kids, if my parents, if they would just tell me, oh, you're doing good one more time, then my proverbial love tank would be full and I'll feel satisfied. Hobbies, travel, shopping, if I could just fill that hole in my heart that can only be satisfied with shoes. (laughs) Politics. If we could just get the right people in office, if we could just get the right legislation passed, if we could just get rid of these clowns in Congress or get a better president or we could get a better whatever, then I would be happy and have a content and good life. What are you thirsty for? The affirmation and praise of others? Security, financial success? No one will be able to hurt you. No one will be able to take advantage of you. Love, someone to look into your heart and just tell you that they love you. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Do you know that there is a rebuke in there? Sounds like a beautiful offer, but Jesus is referencing a prophetic rebuke that's found in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, he is speaking on behalf of God and the prophet Jeremiah says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. They've dug out wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So it's not just that we've disconnected ourselves from the source of life, from the source of clean, pure, fresh water, but we've actually taken a shovel and in our pride and arrogance said, I am going to dig myself a well that will satisfy my needs. Thank you, God. I know you created me. I know you fashioned me in your image and likeness. I know you breathed the breath of life into me, but I think I know better how to take care of myself. And they are, Broken wells and their broken cisterns. What Jesus is offering is living water. He's offering living water that is clean. It, satis- it actually satisfies our desires. How many of you have ever gone camping and you go to get water? Sometimes, like at the state campgrounds, they have those pumps where you can fill up water and you go over to it and then there's a notice on it that says, we really recommend that you boil this water for 30 minutes before drinking it. And you walk away thinking, well, looks like I'm gonna dehydrate this weekend. You ever you ever wanted something you wanted water, but the source was contaminated, the source was dirty? You ever thought that salt water would satisfy? It's a, a, a classic thing that they would have to convince sailors who ran out of food or water that, no, do not drink the salt water. You think it's going to satisfy you and all it's going to do is dry you out and kill you faster. Jesus is saying, I've got clean water. It's clean. You're never going to thirst again. This water is not only clean, it's moving. So it's going to become a fountain. <laughs> That's the difference between a fountain and a reservoir, right? Fountain, it's... Maybe it's coming from under the ground and it bubbles up and it brings freshness and it brings life and it's clean and it's always moving. You ever heard of the phrase pond scum? Do you know why that phrase exists? Because that water has no inlet, it has no outlet, it's stagnant, it's dead, it collects and it doesn't move. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you living water that's moving. It's gonna bubble up to a fountain and it has direction. It's going somewhere. What does it say? He says it's leading to eternal life. Some of you have thought that eternal life starts after you die. Jesus would say, no, eternal life starts the moment that you drink from the fountain of life. Drink of these waters. Drink of me, Jesus is saying, and your trajectory is now set. Eternal life is your destination. This is what Jesus offers, a loving rebuke, and an offer of that which can truly satisfy the human heart. We're going to go one more layer deep, though. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And you think for a moment, yes, she gets it. She's going to become a follower of Jesus. She's going to repent of her sin. Give me this water (laughs) so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She went right back up to the surface level. Oh, that will be sweet because I don't want to keep doing my chores. Could you just have like a drone drop off groceries at my house? That would be wonderful, right? Thanks, Amazon. I don't want to have to come here to draw water. Jesus, I'm not going to let her off the hook. Jesus says, all right, how about we do this? Go, go get your husband and come back and we'll, we'll keep talking about this some more. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him. I have no husband. (laughs) Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Any of you parents ever had your kids tell you something that is technically true but it's not the totality of the picture? Oh yeah, you don't have a husband. You've had five and you're shacked up with a guy right now. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Very perceptive she is. We're going to pause there. I know it's a bit of a cliffhanger. We'll get the resolution of the story next week, but I want to focus in on this. How long do you estimate that Jesus and this woman had known each other at this point? five minutes, 20 minutes, maybe a few hours. How deep did this conversation go? Very. Sometimes we can buy into this temptation that in order to go deep with somebody in relationship, it has to take a long, long period of time. Now, I want you to hear me on this. We should not be foolish with our hearts. We should not maybe expose the depths of who we are and our being to people who are untrustworthy or unsafe or have a proven track record of being manipulative or using things like that against us. I'm not advocating for an unwise approach. But there are many of us, for one reason or another, who bristle at the idea of really opening up and going deep with somebody, especially somebody that we don't know particularly well. In our church community, we do these things called community groups. And I'll be the first to say it's kind of an artificial thing. We're going to plan on being friends on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, right? But we do so because it takes intentionality to get past the walls and the barricades that we put up so that we can avoid sometimes being known. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I don't want to open up. I don't want to share. I don't know that person that well. Here Jesus and this woman, they went very deep, very quickly, and it was okay. It was okay. There's all sorts of reasons why we we put up boundaries. Some of you, particularly those of you who are uh, of an older generation than myself, you were raised in an environment, in a culture that says we don't talk about such things. Some of you were raised with parents that discouraged it. You tried to bring up feelings or emotions or sin or God forbid struggles that you're dealing with and you were met with a shut it down sort of a response. Some of you are just naturally conservative. You're naturally a little bit more shy or timid. All of those things, notwithstanding, what is the call of Jesus on us, on our lives? Confess your sins one to another. Walk in the light as he is in light so that we have fellowship with one another. Bear one another's burdens. How am I going to bear your burdens if you won't tell me what they are? Sometimes, next week we're going to see the woman, the woman... Says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she tries to take the conversation into a theological discussion. Oh, well, we worship in Mount Gerizim because the Samaritans and you worship in Jerusalem. Where should we? She tries to deflect from Jesus by using Bible study. Did you know that you can use Bible study as a way to put up walls in relationship? Let pop quiz myself and the other elders. What's our opinion on Bible study? Good or bad? Thank you, yes. Thank you, Mary. Sound City Bible Church. Like, we're not hiding it, okay? We love Bible study. We think this is a remarkable book. You should study it. But actually, you should read the Bible in such a way that it studies you. Don't use Bible study as a way to build up a wall to keep other people from knowing you. Why is she building up these walls? Well, because she's steeped in shame. Did you notice some of the details in the first section of this passage? Did you notice that it said it was about the sixth hour? The sixth hour started about 6 a.m., sunrise. That means it's noon. In the ancient Near Eastern world and in many parts of the world today, you do not go and draw water at noon. Why? Because it's hot. You go first thing in the morning. Also, every indication from this story would be that this woman is alone. If you were a woman living in the ancient Near Eastern world, you would not go alone to collect water. Why? For fear of attack, for safety reasons, just for camaraderie. She's alone. She's going in the, the wrong hour. She deflects Jesus' questions. She answers truthfully. All signs point to the fact that this woman is living in a state of deep, painful shame. It is likely that she has been ostracized from the community. Everyone knows that she's a tramp. They don't want to be seen with her at the well. Maybe she's hung over and just got up at noon. Who knows? Whatever the reason is, we can see very clearly that she is, she's in shame. Her response to shame is, is, is one of the two very natural responses to shame. Her response to shame is hiding. She's going to hide. Oh, yeah, well, I don't, I don't really have a husband right now. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to kind of go by myself and kind of do my thing. And yeah, it's, no, it's, it's nothing to see here. We see this response to shame in the earliest chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and Unashamed before sin entered into the world. In Genesis 3, they sin, they violate the will of God, they eat of the, the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And what is the very first thing that they do? They go and they sow fig leaves together for themselves. God comes, looking for them, walking with them, wanting to walk with them in the cool of the day. He says, Adam, where are you? Well, we, we hid because we saw that we were naked. It's a very natural response to shame to shrink back, to hide away, to run. Others don't like that response. They find something else that works better for them in their shame, and that is to flaunt whatever it is that they feel ashamed of. Instead of hiding instead of covering, instead of minimizing, I'm just going to go big, and I'm going to own it, and this is a part of who I am, and I'm going to celebrate this, and I'm going to be proud of this, and I'm going to not let anybody shame me by putting a big front up that says, this is who I am, accept me or not, I don't care. We see this in Philippians chapter three, where Paul talks about people who, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. This might be silly, and you can chuckle if you want, but we see this even in young children. I think of the example of having young kids and remembering back to even my own time as being a young kid. You see a kid that does something maybe shameful or embarrassing or gross. I think of the little boy who picks his nose and the kids point and they laugh and they say, ha ha, you're the boy that picks his nose. And there is a, a, a choice to run into. I'm gonna hide, I'm gonna cover it. Or you see little kids go, yeah, that's right. I am the boy that picks my nose and they flaunt it and they go big on it and they go strong on it. It's just there in human nature. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is actually a false dichotomy in our response to shame. Because we've heard the message of the gospel. We don't have to hide. We don't have to flaunt. We can run to Jesus. When I I hear people talk about This passage, most often I hear people say things, Christians, not even necessarily preachers, but just Christians, very often they say things like, well, you know, the point of this passage is that Jesus loved this woman. He didn't judge her. He moved past societal barriers. All of that is fine and good, but let me tell you something. You cannot love like Jesus until you have first been loved by Jesus. If you don't see in yourself this Samaritan woman, if you don't see in yourself the the need for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, you will not be able to turn around and share that love with somebody else. It's beyond your capability, it's impossible. You can't do it. Jesus entered into our shame, did he not? He enters into our weakness. He had to go to Samaria. That was no accident. Jesus wasn't just trying to shave a few minutes off of his travel time. He he went looking for this one. Going back to St. Augustine, what he said earlier, he continues his quote, he says this, he says, it was for you that Jesus was wearied with his journey. Have you thought about that? Why was Jesus tired? Well, because he'd been hiking and it was hot. Yeah. Why was Jesus there? It was for this woman. It was for us. We find Jesus to be strength and we find Jesus to be weak. We find both a strong and a weak Jesus. We find him strong because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Would you see how this son of God is strong? All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made. And, Augustine points out, without labor, too, were they made. What could be stronger than he by whom all things were made without labor? That's pretty strong, would you agree? Would you know him weak? The word made flesh and dwelt among us. The strength of Christ created you. The weakness of Christ created you anew. The strength of Christ caused that to be which was not. The weakness of Christ caused that what was should not perish. He fashioned us by his strength and he sought us by his weakness. We're about to enter into the Advent season, a time of celebrating and longing and expecting the the birth of Jesus, the coming of our King. And I find it remarkable that the Son of God, the very living Word, did not just become a man. The Son of God did not just become a man. He became a baby. We have, I believe, four brand new infants in our church. And my kids have they've grown. My youngest is turning five here. And you kind of forget until you see another one, just the tiniest, helpless, vulnerable little baby. Did Jesus become weak and vulnerable for us? Yeah. During his earthly life, did Jesus... Make himself vulnerable and weak. He, he says that foxes have dens and birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His family rejected him and despised him. His countrymen rejected him and despised him. He did not have a position of authority or superiority in his earthly life and ministry. He went lower and lower and lower and lower, all the way to becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Not just death, but the lowest, most shameful form of death that could possibly be. That Jesus Jesus himself, when he was nailed to the cross, was stripped naked, made shameful. Why? So that he could take all our shame upon himself and to clothe us in his righteousness. Was this done for you? Was this done for you? He rose from the dead. He proved that everything he said was true. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and now he sits in heaven next to his Father interceding on our behalf every hour of every day so that every thing that you are ashamed of can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. If we are honest every single one of us have let our desires drive us to dirty wells. If we're honest. And if we're honest, we'll say, yeah, there's, there's things in my life that I'm deeply ashamed of. But because of the gospel, we don't need to hide and we don't need to flaunt. We can simply meet Jesus the well of living water. So what do we do? How do we do that? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to close with a psalm. You can flip there with me. Psalm 145. The Psalms are full of all sorts of beautiful imagery of drinking of Jesus and the, the water that he gives to us. I'm going to start in verse 16 and I want to I see this as a bit of our response. How do we respond to this Jesus? Verse 16. God, you open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So starting question do you believe that? Like really, really believe that? Do you actually believe that the desires you have will be met by Jesus? The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. You want to see this lived out? What does it mean that the Lord is righteous and kind? This is Jesus meeting with this woman at the well. Are you there? Are you seeing Jesus in that way? The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Friends, we can call on the Lord because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can go in prayer today. God, I have, I have tried to satisfy my thirsts in broken cisterns and with dirty water. And I need to call on you today. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Some of you have never cried out to Jesus, and today is the day where you're going to cry out to him, and you're going to receive this grace. You're going to receive this forgiveness, this living water that he gives to us. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We're going to go into a time of worship and response and singing and prayer and celebrating the Lord's table. And so as we do so, let's speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name. God, I ask and I pray right now. Wherever our desires have led us, whatever things we are ashamed of, God, I ask and I pray that you would give us the courage to respond to you. God, that we would see you in Jesus, tired and weary from the journey, offering us a drink of living water. God, would you forgive us for drinking salt water, trying to satisfy ourselves? God, would you Give us the courage to deal with the shame that keeps us hiding in the dark. God, would you use community and relationships and friendships where we could open up to one another to drive us out of the dark, to drive us into your light. May our time of response now be sincere. May it be sweet in your presence, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we maintain an attitude of worship. We'll begin our response with the giving of our tithes and offerings. We'll just encourage you to give. If you're a guest or a visitor, we don't, we don't do arm twisting or guilt trips. We do an invitation to worship God, the one who's given us living water. We, we, we give as an act of worshipful response. And so you can give here in service. You can give online, you can text to give. We'll invite our younger students class to join us in. I'm gonna read through some questions. This will be some further application for us uh, in our homes, our community groups this week. We we'll start with an easy one and then we we'll go straight to meddling. So why do you think that Jesus passed through Samaria? What does this show us about his mission, his identity and his heart towards various people groups of the world? Number two, honestly evaluate your heart and share with your group. You ready? Here's where I go from preaching to meddling. What other wells do you draw from instead of Jesus to satisfy your thirsts? Number three, how does this gospel free us to have deep conversations with other people even if we don't know them particularly well? And who, specifically who, has God placed in your life that you can talk to and open up with? And number four, where do you struggle with shame? And which ditch Are you prone to run into when you feel that shame, the hiding ditch or the flaunting ditch? And then we gotta pray. Friends, we gotta pray. We can't do any of this on our own strength, can we? Can you change your heart? Can I change your heart? No, only God can. We need to pray. Pray that God would remind us as Christians that we have a fountain of living water to drink from. And I encourage you to pray prayers of specific repentance for ways that you've, sought to have your thirst quenched in other sources. And then number two, ask God for the ability to see the barriers that separate you and others and pray for compassion and courage to move past those barriers to share the love of Jesus. When you truly find living water, one of the natural responses should be that we want to share it, amen? We you want to give this to somebody else, it's too good to not share. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I'll invite our musicians to come prepare too. As we hand out the elements, I'll invite you to hold on to these. We're going to pray the musicians will play instrumentally, and then we'll begin our time of singing. I want to read from First Corinthians 11 to set the table for this celebration here. The Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, I I sometimes poke fun at these these meager elements. They're, They're simple. There's nothing magical or special about them. But in this celebratory meal, we believe that Christ comes to meet with us And today, as we eat and as we drink, may we remember that we have our satisfaction in Christ. Amen? Amen. Whatever it is that you're tempted to run towards, to eat from, to drink from, today, let us feast on Christ. Let us drink deeply of Christ and have our satisfaction in him. There's also an invitation to examine. It says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine themselves, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we invite you to hold in in prayer. If you're with someone, a friend, a spouse, a community group member, you wanna pray together, you're more than welcome to do that. But my invitation is for you to go before the Lord today, let him search your heart, and then eat and drink deeply of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for what this means. Thank you for this celebration and may we now bring our thirsty hearts to you. May we bring our thirsts and our hungers and all of our desires and bring them to you to truly find satisfaction. Wash us clean of our shame. And God, we long for the day when we see you face to face and all our tears are washed away, all our shame is dealt with, And we get to eat and drink at the banquet table, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray. And until that day, keep us faithful. Amen.